This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Well, this is a fun episode today. We are answering your questions because our listeners are really smart. They're following along. And as they listen to our episodes, they're coming up with, hey, I want to hear more about this topic. And so I'm in the studio today with John, Austin, and Shay. Austin here. Hey, guys. Yeah, you guys need to say hey. You need to say hey, Shay. (laughs) Hi, hon. Oh, well, that was a sweet greeting. I, I can't heard say that, that sweet greeting in a while. <laughs> honey, honey bun is honey his bun little is nickname my, for me. Is my nickname for her. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But we won't. Yeah, we, we won't, won't go, go down that. that path. Yeah. But you know, the series that we've done so far have been so practical, so well received. We've talked about managing your emotions, managing your relationships, managing difficult people, and we just finished our series called "Beliefs That Keep You Stuck." And we covered a lot of territory in that, didn't we? Well, we did. And did you know that this is an award-winning podcast now? Who's awarded us? The Crossing Counseling Ministry has given this podcast (laughs) the award of Podcast of the Year. So we're patting ourselves on the back is what I think is happening. Do we get a trophy or something? A potty. Uh, Oh, we get a potty. You know, you get Grammys, Addies. This is a potty. John, can you be honest? That whole line was leading up to that line right there to get the potty. No, actually, it it just came off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm that quick right. on my feet. Yeah. You, know? you guys are so silly. Let's answer some questions. Hey, we get serious questions <laughs> from our listeners. And yeah. the first question that we want to tackle today is, what therapeutic concept has been most eye-opening to you? And I was really excited when we got this question because that means our listeners are tuned in and they want to know, as counselors, what have we encountered that's been the most helpful for us, maybe personally or in our profession. And I just want to start answering this question by acknowledging that when I started counseling, I started to frame things a certain way in my head. And that is that, you know, when you read a book or listen to a sermon, I consider that kind of one-dimensional learning. You're building your head knowledge, that left brain, logical, linear thinking. When you do counseling with someone, that's more two-dimensional. That's where there's listening, responding, advice giving. There's an emotional exchange between two people. And so the first several years that I was doing counseling, that's essentially what what I was doing with people. We were sharing information with each other. But what I came to realize after John joined our team about 10 years ago, and he started to teach me about therapy, is that therapy is what I would call three-dimensional. And that means it goes deeper than just the content of what people are sharing verbally. And it really starts to attune into a person's emotional world. And that taps into the person's right brain where there's memory and feeling and sensation and imagery. 
And since I wasn't trained in therapy in my counseling program, when John came and I was sitting in on the sessions he was doing with people, I was like, whoa, what is happening right now? What is going on? Because it just like the, the sparks are flying and, you know, people's emotions are really coming online and you're really working with those. And so that really fascinated me and really introduced me into this concept of therapy, which really connects the left brain and the right brain. And it creates a feedback loop that actually leads to wisdom. That's where growth really sets in and really takes place. And I want to add that I think that as Christians, when we do therapy, I think it's four-dimensional. And what I mean by that is that we have the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. And the Spirit is shining a light in our hearts through the process of therapy in a way that I think is very unique. It's very experiential. It's very powerful. Um, But this process of self-reflection and working with our deep thoughts and feelings is really what's modeled to us throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs and the wisdom literature. And um, there are different models of therapy that we use, but the one that I think helps us get into a client's emotional world, maybe most quickly, most effectively, is a model of therapy called IFS. And that stands for Internal Family Systems. And so this model of internal family systems was developed by a man named Dick Schwartz. And his theory has really become popularized in recent years. I see a lot of therapists posting about it on social media. They're utilizing it. And there have been several books written recently by Christian counselors like ourselves who have taken this model and pulled it through a Christian worldview or a biblical filter and we really see how life-changing it can be for people. Yeah, I, I don't want to cut you off too much, but I've started doing that. And it's been it's been great. Like, mm-hmm. I'm really excited and looking forward to keep doing that. So I love that you're talking about this. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of this model is that it really resonates with how God created people in his image to be whole. In fact, the word integer means whole or integrated. So if you think about it this way, God created the self to be whole in his image in this unique self, this original design for who we are. So God's original design was for us to be whole, perfectly connected with him, with others, and ourselves. And in fact, this idea of the multiplicity of our souls is reflected in God as the Trinity, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we see this already just in how God created us. But when sin entered the world, we also experienced what I would call a split or an inner fragmentation. And so everything that was whole has now been broken or divided or disintegrated. And as a result of living in a fallen world, we now carry fear, hurt, pain, loss of connection. And so this theory of IFS really captures this internal reality of us not only being, you know, that multiplicity of self, but but being fragmented and divided against ourselves. And so IFS just kind of gives us language to navigate what's happening inside of us. And And it's real natural. Yeah, it's really natural. Like when you talk about parts, like part of me really didn't want to get up and come do this podcast this morning, but the other part of me was really ready and excited. You know, we naturally use the language of parts when we refer to our experiences. And there's actually a strong neurological explanation to parts. So just to break this down, a part is essentially a neural network that's part of a larger mental map in our brains 
that gets created over the course of our lifetime. And typically, uh, those neural networks are created over intense emotional experiences, often negative experiences where we've been hurt or we've lost someone or felt disconnected. And each part kind of takes on a life of its own. It has its own feelings, beliefs about itself or the world, bodily sensations, energy, tone of voice, memories. And the brain is like a lamp. So these neural networks get activated in our present state when we encounter people or situations that remind us of things that's happened in our past. And and essentially what we're doing with IFS is we're looking inside and we're examining where did this part come from? What is this part feeling? What does this part think? Um, how are these internal parts working together or how are they polarized and in conflict with each other? So um, I don't think I'm going to go too more into detail about it because it, it gets pretty complicated after that. But um, the remarkable thing is that when a person can start to identify parts and name them and become aware of them and notice when they appear or you know what they're thinking and what they're feeling, you can now start to manage your thoughts and feelings and behaviors, and you can actually work to unburden parts of your soul that contain beliefs that maybe aren't true or that come from experiences that were very profoundly hurtful to you. And so the idea is that when you can unburden these parts, then that image of God's self that we mentioned can can grow, can come forward, can emerge. It's that adult part of you that can have compassion and be curious and have a sense of calm or confidence. And that's much like when we read about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Maybe I missed one. Faithfulness. off the top of my head. Boy, it was fast, though. So <laughs> I, I want to trust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that, you know, the self now has that self-control. It has clarity of mind. You you kind of begin to know who you are. Yeah, you know what's interesting even about, so this IFS system created by a, a non-Christian, Dick Schwartz isn't a Christian, and yet mm-hmm. uh, what I've seen, it's, a I think, a common grace way to do therapy with people, meet with people. And I heard, I think it was um, in the book, Altogether You, she says something like, basically, we're doing internally for our parts what Jesus did mm-hmm. externally in the world. Yeah. And so if you want, that's just been helpful for me to think through this mm-hmm. biblical foundation of how can we pull IFS through a biblical lens. And everything you're saying, I think, is really great and help explain, helping mm-hmm. explain more what this is like from a Christian perspective. Yeah, you're yeah. doing a good job. Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the book Altogether You, and I think that's a great place for people to start if they're thinking, what is she even talking about? And they want to get a better understanding. I do want to throw the caveat in there that Every secular model has its limitations. You know, you know, Dick Schwartz uh, created this theory, but it wasn't from a biblical framework. And so, you know, just dig into it a little bit more, come to understand how it does um, reflect scripture. Um, and, you know, I think it can be a very good place for people to begin that self-reflection process and kind of figure out what's happening inside of themselves. Yeah, he's limited in his language and in his understanding when it comes to sin. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely no category in his thinking for it. No, and the way we would, and what's good about it, what we would add to it is he'll talk about all parts being welcomed Mm -hmm. and all of your parts being good. Mm -hmm. And we would go down the football field quite a ways with that because there is a renewed heart in the believer Mm -hmm. that's a good heart and a new heart. But 
parts of the heart get hijacked, if you will, Mm -hmm. by this thing that we believe exists, which is called sin. Mm -hmm. And that's just what he has no category for. Right. Yep. But you guys are pointing out that, you know, the importance of we're, we're different um, our counseling is different at the, you know, in our church, and we, we take an integrated approach. Mm-hmm. We can learn some things from secular psychology that are true maybe about the world or humanity that we incorporate, and it helps inform us in our biblical thinking. And so we combine the two, and, and that's why we think it's a little bit different and, and um, I think actually better and more biblically faithful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we're not we're not scared of that. And that's something that you and just the woven into the DNA of our church is we're not necessarily scared of non-Christian thought thinking mm-hmm. on that. Let's examine it. You mm-hmm. know, let's get on Philippians four, eight, whatever's good, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's noble. If we're gonna live that out, we're gonna be curious. And Absolutely. Let's, let's take maybe what's good and think about what maybe we'd not include. Yep. Yeah. And it's a common grace model. Mm-hmm. Um in the wisdom literature. Uh yeah. the writer of the Proverbs, uh, observed the ant Mm. and watched the ant Mm -hmm. in the way it behaved and drew conclusions Mm -hmm. that painted a picture of how the heart works and how humans work. So we do the same thing. Okay, John, I'm interested. Um, Who would you say, what thoughts um, have who or what maybe counseling dynamic has been influential in your thinking? Yeah. uh, So, Lynn, that's a great explanation of IFS. I practice it. I think all of us do in the counseling Mm -hmm. ministry. You explained it really well. And you mentioned that I influenced you in your exposure to the difference between counseling and therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) I learned therapy uh, through object relations. And I learned it just like you learned it from me, mm-hmm. um, maybe a little bit different. My uh, One of my mentors was my therapist for a year. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And he did object relations therapy on me mm-hmm. and basically taught me how to understand my heart. Hmm. And that's how I learned it. Mm-hmm. I had all this book stuff right. in me. And then when I started doing clinic, I was freaking out because mm-hmm. how do I put this together? Mm-hmm. And what, what is object relations? Yeah. So um, object relations uh, is largely based in attachment theory, which you're going to talk about, Austin. And it holds that a person develops in stages over time as they relate to external people, especially primary caregivers. And at the time when they developed this model back in the 60s, Uh, it was largely focused on the influence of the mother because that years ago, the mother was most of the time at home Mm -hmm. with the kiddo. Uh, But you're looking at how the kid learns to relate uh, by the way they're related to. And they also have internal images uh, Hmm. that they develop of people and how they relate. So object relations uh, was born out of old school psychoanalysis and old school psychoanalysis was very impersonal. So you see cartoons of the patient looking away from the therapist at a blank wall. Laying on a couch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the theory used to be that the therapist's intervention would interfere mm-hmm. with the client's ability to understand what was happening inside of them. Um, that changed over time. But during the time, because object relations was so influenced by that, they called it object relations. Uh, and what they really mean is uh, relationship relations. And that mm, they probably should relations. Yes, they probably <laughs> should have called it something like that. Mm. And it's all about how you learn to relate. 
during your developmental stages uh, early on and how that shapes how you relate to everyone around you as you grow and become an adult. Mm -hmm. So I was largely trained in that model and it was given to me by having it done to me experientially. And it was very, very eye-opening. I had the same experience, Lynn, as you did with me, like, what is happening here? And it just answered more questions for me than it raised. Um, I also was trained in family systems theory. Mm -hmm. We studied uh, Richard Schwartz, and he was a big dog in the family systems theory world, which was also um, psychodynamic based. Mm -hmm. And then Richard Schwartz developed Internal family systems. So he basically took all of that psychoanalytic, psychodynamic family systems theory and said, hmm, I bet that works inside a person's heart. Um, Also, interpersonal neurobiology, Mm -hmm. Dan Siegel out of UCLA. What is that? Yeah, it's based on the latest brain research. And the latest brain research, which we've been able to do in the last 15, 20 years because of fMRIs, functional MRIs, um, we're able to understand how the brain works. So really, neurobiology is the more popular term. It's sort of become a research-based, harder science umbrella Mm -hmm. that explains why all of these other modalities worked. Yeah. Yeah, so it's almost like it's giving a specific nuts and bolts of why and how some of these things are working. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Everything up until neurobiology and the latest research was Mm -hmm. anecdotal. Mm -hmm. It was, well, we don't know exactly what's happening, but Mm -hmm. this treatment is working. Yeah, so it's like the physiological explanation for our psychological mapping and symptoms. And I'll just say one more point about what you're saying, John, is you know, going into the object relations and IFS, the therapist becomes the most important tool in the room. And that's what I'm kind of working with um, some of our interns right now, because, you know, you, you learn theory, you learn interventions, you learn all these things, and then you realize, no, me and my emotional world is what this other person is going to connect to. And that's where the therapy gets really fun. Yes, the therapist is key. And that's what I want to flip into now. So all of that that I've said is the content stuff that influenced me. But as I said a minute ago, I I was really uh, trained in therapy and I learned how to do it from people, Mm -hmm. very key people. Um, My lifelong mentor who pushed me initially to become a therapist, best marriage counselor I've ever known, um, he has influenced me tremendously, the relationship that mm-hmm. I have with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really key in how we do therapy and how I have developed as a therapist. Uh, more is learned that is caught than taught. And I caught a lot of things from this mentor over 30 years. One of the things is this, and he told me this recently about a year ago. He said, you know, when I'm counseling, I give advice. But when I go into therapy mode, I tell my clients, I am now a student and a learner of your life. I'm learning from you. Mm-hmm. And That's really good. That really yeah. impacted me. Um, and we're all talking about lots of great thinking and books and people. Uh, but the thing that we do called therapy is really humbling. Because despite what I know, every time I go into a session, and I do know a lot, I still feel like a beginner. Yeah. Uh, I'm experienced, 
but I'm a beginner all over again with each heart that I'm working with when I ask them to trust me, mm-hmm. because that's how complicated the heart is. Yeah, yeah that's so, a great way of trying to explain what we do in therapy. Yeah, content and yeah. people, but really yeah. mostly people. How about you, Austin? Yeah, um, man, I'm just enjoying sitting and listening from you guys. Um, You're there's learning, a lot, aren't you? I, I am. Um, you know, this question, it's like saying, what's your favorite book or movie? It's hard to pick one. Um, if I had to narrow it down to one thing I'm, I'm learning would be influenced by, you guys mentioned attachment theory. It's the writings and research of John Bowlby, who was the guy that mm-hmm. began spearheading a lot of this systematic um, model. And Bowlby, he recognized that every person essentially has a longing and desire for relational connection. I'm not sure he'd say it that way, but I think if he were alive today, he'd say, yeah. And and his findings and research, I think they very much confirm what the Bible's been saying uh, for years. God's like been saying that for years, uh, just about how he made us. Um, And so through his research, he discovered that a common pattern that kids showed when they didn't get love or care or connection that they wanted, there were these three parts to it. There was a stage of protest, despair, and detach. And the way he found this out is really kind of sad. I won't go too much into the details. But as sad and tragic as a pattern as that is, I think it's helpful to know for a couple of reasons. One, it just explains so much about the problem that we find ourselves in. You know, Lynn, you mentioned we've talked a lot about how we live in a Genesis 3 world. It's fragmented. It's fallen, all that. And that really captures it. When we're hurt or disappointed or overwhelmed, we all do this to some degree or another. The protest, despair, detached. You know, protest is essentially, hey, this hurts. Mm -hmm. I don't like this. And so if and when we don't get the help we want or the solution we need or when we're not attended to, we go to that next stage of despair. And this is, hey, somebody help me do something about this, but it's realizing nobody's coming Mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to sit in this pain and I'm going to have to deal with it. And if and when this happens, we go to that final stage of detachment. You know, I'll take care of this on my own. I'm going to do it myself. Uh, and, and there's a good and right level, healthy level to do that. But this goes to the extreme and says, I don't need anybody. I'm going to cope with the pain. Mm-hmm. And that goes against something God said in Genesis 2.18, that it's not good to be alone. You know, the mantra that I was taught going through therapy school is, in relationship, you are wounded. And in relationship, you are healed. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well said. The beginning of time, mm-hmm. because God is relational, right. he's made us to be relational. Yeah. yeah. And the second reason I think that, you know, protest, despair, uh, detached framework is helpful is that, is that you kind of mentioned it. It lays the groundwork for healing. You know, God said uh, in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. And so a key way for healing is to offer a relational presence with somebody in the face of a hardship, a hurt, a protest. Mm. Now, that's not all we need, mm-hmm. right? And there's there's more to it, but that's kind of the foundation of the house, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, and really, everybody ultimately needs Jesus, but that relational presence can be, John, you say this, I've heard you say this a lot, Jesus with skin on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so knowing and sensing that somebody's with us in our hardship helps us move away from that detachment and more towards connection. So yeah. all that said, it's probably more than you want to know, but mm-hmm. those are the things by Bowlby and attachment. It's just kind of what mm-hmm. I'm learning and kind of what informs yeah. a big part of what, what I what I do. Yeah. And back to the importance of the therapist in the room, you're giving the client an experience of safety and secure attachment that they may have never had in their lives. And that's exciting for us as therapists to provide 
um, because that's where we see people grow because that's how God created us. Right. Okay, well, this has been a very fun discussion on therapy, but we want to answer another question that a listener submitted, and that is on the topic of singleness. And here's what this listener asked. In my experience, it seems like a lot of singles in the church get overlooked or singled out as, quote, second-class citizens. Why is that? And what advice would you give to someone who's struggling to make meaningful friendships as a single person in the church? Shay, you've been a pastor for, what, over 30 years. I know you've encountered this question before, and I'm really curious what your thoughts are on this as you've met with people and worked with people on this question. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. You know, does the church as a whole uh, sometimes gear all their programming and all their messages towards families and children? And I I think, unfortunately, um, the the person asking this question, I think they're right. We, unfortunately, a lot of churches do, and, and we shouldn't. And, and so the question is, is why? Well, the, the Bible, um, this may come as a shock to a lot of our listeners, but the Bible affirms the goodness of singleness over and over. Um, you know, both marriage and singleness are seen as good things. Um, and wasn't Jesus single? Yeah. I just, that's, uh, <laughs> wasn't he, yeah. He's the guy that comes to – the perfect man, right? Jesus was yeah. single. Uh, Paul, Titus, Mary, Martha. We could go on and on all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find singles who are honored. Uh, and in fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about the benefits of singleness, where he says, uh, and we don't have time to read it, but he says, you know what? Singles, uh, think about it, are freed up uh, to be concerned about the kingdom of God. Um, in other words, he says, you know, married have to be focused on their spouses and and their needs. But but when you're single, you have maybe more time to serve and to go on mission trips and to be involved <clears throat> in your extended families and to be a good uncle, uh, to be a good aunt, or maybe you've got more time to what read and study your Bible. Um, or more time to serve in great organizations in your in your city or wherever you live. You have time to develop friendships with other singles. I, I know this, one of the things that, you know, when you're married, when you're raising kids, sometimes you can put other friendships on the back burner, and it's hard to have friendships with other people um, when that happens. But but what I want you to see, just first off, is, is that the Bible, both Paul, Jesus, God affirms the importance of singleness, the goodness of singleness. And and so the question is, is why? Well, one reason is, remember that the Bible tells us that marriage is going to pass away. Um, You remember, Jesus is asked about this. He says, you know, in in heaven, uh, will we be married? (laughs) Who will we be married to? And Jesus says, he he says, no one, right? And, And so if you think about it, uh, marriage, as as Paul says in Ephesians five, is a picture of Jesus Christ in the church. Okay, mm-hmm. but when we get to heaven, that that picture is going to come to fruition, right? Mm-hmm. And so there will no longer marriage will no longer be needed. Mm-hmm. I think you're ruining a lot of people's uh, world right now, Shay, to say that people were not going to be married in heaven. And I'm kind of joking, but also. I just hear that's a pretty revolutionary, like, if you haven't thought about that, mm-hmm. that's that's crazy. It to, is crazy. To think about. That we're going to live millions and millions of years and for all eternity and not be married. Right. Mm-hmm. So so marriage is very temporary. 
Um, I had a client, and he said, you know that verse where we're not going to be given in marriage in heaven? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, it doesn't say we're not going to have sex. It just says we're not going to be given in marriage. <laughs> and he goes, you know, he goes, I don't know what's going to happen up there, but, like, I hope, you know, whatever replaces sex, I hope it's as good. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, I, and honestly, I, it's a question it's I've a, had, too, John. Seriously. Is why wouldn't sex continue on in heaven? I don't know the answer to that. Well, I don't think the Bible really addresses it, but well, it is a good question. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's important to hit on it because— a lot of single people who are wanting to walk faithfully with Jesus, um, and they're not uh, acting out sexually, there is a suffering in that, that I don't have that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and gee, if we're not going to have it in heaven, like maybe I'll never have sex. Mm-hmm. But whatever replaces sex has to be so much better. Yeah. And that's what sex points to. That's, a, that's exactly right. And by the way, I to, I've told Lynn, if we're not going to be married in heaven, I'm going to be really friendly to you, though. Um, just <laughs> FYI. It's also one of the, the things that <laughs> when I was trying to get her to marry me is I said, look, marriage isn't forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for all just eternity. Give, give me 50 good years and give then me, we'll, <laughs> we'll see how it is. <laughs> Well, you're and pro- not even that. I mean, if I'm seven, well, almost seven years older than she is, and so you know, I was thinking thirty, forty, yeah. that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Did but, I get uh, you? Did I get you sidetracked? No, no, we're all good right here. But, 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 back to your point, John. Singles who are Christians already have this relationship with Jesus now, um, as they look to Him to be their identity and their protector and their provider and the source of all satisfa- satisfaction in life. And, and they have that relationship with Jesus now. So should marriage, but marriage is passing it away. And, and so in some sense, um, do you see, guys see what I'm, I'm saying is, is it's just very temporary. And, and in some sense, being single reflects what we're going to be in the future mm-hmm. in heaven, in that mm-hmm. relationship with Jesus. Yes. I hope that's clear. Yeah, it sounds like what I hear you saying is in the same way that, let's just say, single people can get a picture for if and when they get married they can learn from, meet with other married couples to get an idea. In the same way, married couples and people who are married can learn from single people mm-hmm. to get a picture of, wow, this in the end, since marriage is not going to be around, this is what it can be like. And so there's kind of a two-way street. It's not, oh, just singles, you just have to learn from these married people who have everything all together and this is the pinnacle of human existence. No, no, no. Married people we have things to learn from singles as well. Yeah, yeah that's I, exactly right. That's and a, so let, let me let me just say yeah. this. So another question I think sometimes singles have is, you know, where Paul is talking there in 1 Corinthians 7, and I would encourage our listeners to go back and, and to read that passage in full. But the question is, is there a gift of singleness? Mm. Um, and, and, you know, if you want to be married, you're single and you want to be married, you're thinking this is the gift that I really don't want to have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the, how to interpret that passage is, is that what the Bible is saying is, is that whatever state you're in, uh, it's a gift from God. So wherever God has you in life, live for his glory. So if you're married, it's a gift. If you're single, it's a gift. So use that time to honor Jesus and to walk faithfully with him. Okay, because that's where he has you at this stage in your life. And and so if you're single right now, it it might be God's gift to you 
live to the, his glory, but you may not have that gift for the rest of your life because God might bring somebody in the, that you're going to be married to. So if you're single, it's a gift from God, but, but you may not have that gift all of your life. So, so use the time wherever God has you wisely. And, and, and think about this also. As a single person, you, you may not have children or physical heirs, but think maybe about all the spiritual heirs that might be in heaven because you reach them with the gospel of Jesus. But, but here's the key, and maybe I'll end with this. I, I think we need to be careful about overvaluing marriage where we make it into an idol. Mm. In other words, if you're single and if you make this so important and you think, look, if I'm never married, then my life is not going to be complete. I think we need to be careful about that. I think we, we, got, we have to learn to find our contentment in Jesus. But I also think we shouldn't make this, the mistake of undervaluing marriage. Um, and, and I think more and more people today value singleness. Why? Because of other idols that are operating in their life. You know, maybe they want to, they say, you know, look, I'm just going to live for money. I, I, I just want to live for career. Or I just want to live for myself. I want to be free. I want all that freedom entails. And I want to do whatever I want to do in life. And I don't want to be tied down. And, and so people can overvalue marriage but they can also undervalue it as well. I think that's a good point, Shay. Yeah, and, 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 and I think another thing that I see operating is, is, is and, and why marriage has become undervalued in our culture is, is because of the hookup culture, right? Because you can simply hook mm. up, you can just get sex without commitment. And, and the hookup culture leads to, well, why would, would people commit their lives to one another when they can just get sex? And really what they're saying is, is you know, I want to sleep with you, but I don't love you enough to commit my, my life to you. And much of the backdrop to that is people seeing so many failed marriages mm-hmm. and marriages that uh, are not healthy. And they're, they're overreacting to that, but they're reacting to something that they've seen and felt that's been hurtful. And mm-hmm. they're asking the honest question, well, this doesn't Why work. Why should I do yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. And that's a legitimate, you know, belief, right? Because people have made such a mess of marriage. Well, yeah. and, and in part, I don't want to just kick the church, but in in part, I think the church has so lifted up marriage and they've missed the deeper meaning of what it is to be married, to learn to love like Jesus loved, that it's become an idol. Mm-hmm. And in and of itself, it just doesn't have enough life mm-hmm. like, yeah. to keep maybe, going. Maybe one way of looking at it is, you know, we meet with a lot of couples who are married and they're intensely suffering. Mm. And we meet with a lot of singles and they're intensely suffering. We are all in the same boat. You know, you can yeah. be married and be miserable and you can be married and be very lonely. Mm-hmm. Abs- even more lonely because the opportunity is there. Because you, you can't connect with your spouse exactly. or your spouse has done something extremely hurtful to you. So yeah. I guess my point is that learning to be content, whether you're single or married, is kind of the call that we all have to address in our lives and really examine, you know, what is God having for me in this season that yep. I'm in? 
Yeah. yeah that's an excellent point. That's a great point. You know, the other thing, and I'm not sure if this is helpful or revolutionary, whatever it is, but um, I'm thinking about, you know, if you're single and you're listening to this, maybe you know all the right Christian answers. Maybe you hear Jesus is single. Yeah, okay, I'm supposed to know that, but maybe that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've heard lots of well-meaning people try to give lots of good advice in an attempt to help, but that has come, maybe you felt like at the expense of your own experience of hurt and pain and suffering. And I think what I would want to say is all of these truths that us four married people are sharing with you are not meant to demean or to tell you to, hey, put your pain, put your hurt behind the back burner. No, all of this is meant to go right alongside with any sort of experiences of loneliness and hurt and pain that you have. It's not either or, it's both. And Mm -hmm. so for whatever it's Mm -hmm. worth, if you're hearing this, you need to hear these things in the same way that we do. And at the same time, that doesn't come at the expense of you Mm -hmm. really saying, I want out, I don't want to be here. I think that's really good, Austin. I I think another thing that I see um, in the church is when Christian singles um, overvalue marriage, they make it into an idol. Um, What happens is, is the older they get, um, they will perhaps compromise and and marry someone who's not a Christian, and and it's it's hard, right, to be married to someone who doesn't share your same great love um, for 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 Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. It and I get it. There's there's been people that have married non Christians and they've come to the old Christian <laughs> missionary dating kind of thing. Flirt to they've convert. come to they've come to faith oh, and I flirt I, I, to convert, I get baby. It, but <laughs> but probably, you know, we we've got to trust what God says on this and it's 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 not a good thing most of the time. But but the final thing I'll say is sometimes I, I think one of the things I see is in our culture is that um, singles, we we sometimes or singles will sometimes judge a prospective spouse um, by pretty superficial things, and so you guys know the same, right? Men marry just for looks, women for money. Oftentimes, that wasn't um, me though. No, Lynn, you obviously married me for my looks, and not my <laughs> not my money. I just want to say that. Um, but but I think character is obviously so much more Im- important. And yes, in any dating relationship, there ha- it, for people to get married, there has to be in a physical attraction. But but another thing that I, I will also say is I think we have a, a a generation of guys who are who have failed to launch, so to speak, and and they they remain in some sense children. They're not really growing up. They're really not maturing, and. They, you know, I don't know if you're just living in your your parents' basement and that sort of thing, and you're just not really fully moving into adulthood. And and I, I think there's an issue that there's a lot of great women out there, um, and and guys are just, hey, look, I can watch porn, I can live in my parents' basement, and they're not moving into maturity and adulthood. And I and what I would say to them is, you probably need to move into maturity, and, and you need to get married. And and guys for the most part remaining single, not not launching into maturity, that that's not a good thing for our society. And so I want to throw it op- out to you guys and I just want to ask the question, how to um how do you what what advice would you give to singles? How do you deal with the loneliness that comes yeah. with that many times? Yeah, advice to singles. Um it's just uh, an intense form of suffering to be lonely. Um, and 
I just want to honor that, that mm-hmm. it's really hard, especially if you want to follow Jesus in this culture. Yeah. Um, you don't neatly fit into the church that's pushing marriage where a lot of people are married, and you don't neatly fit into the hookup culture because mm-hmm. you want to be faithful to Jesus. So you really have uh, kind of a cocktail for being a misfit there. And I, and I think a lot of singles struggle with that. And I just want to honor that it is a form of suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say, just like you said, Lynn, marriage has suffering. Singleness has, has suffering. Um, have a posture of opening the heart to what Jesus can give you in that suffering and how you can learn to have him be with you in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And even to know how Jesus must have felt it's not always when we suffer that there's some lesson that we get or that Jesus really can relate to me because he was human. What about the value of, man, I wonder if this is how Jesus felt. I wonder if this loneliness can help me understand what it must have been like to be Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 it's so good. And Austin, you know, mentioned earlier that what Genesis 2.18, it's not good for, good to for man, to, for people to be alone. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways we deal with that loneliness is we need deep, committed friendships. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, and just people yes. who know us well and that we can share our lives with. And 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 the church, I, I think, for the most part, or I, the, the, I think the church has struggled in, in this area. I'm oh, just going to be time. honest. Mm-hmm. And the church should be the place where singles can find those deep and those committed relationships. I mean, remember, go yeah. back, Paul, 1 Corinthians 7 says that, that, right, we should take care of widows so that back then so they don't have to remarry, right? That, that they should, we should take care of them financially so that they can remain single. And so he, I think he's pointing to the idea that, that singleness should be honored in the church, but also it should be a place where those deep kind of relationships can form. Well, yeah, I'll so, say, so very, very practically on that point, um, if you're single, uh, look around for somebody who's married and maybe be bold and ask, hey, can I come over for dinner? And just start, not all the time, but start getting involved in the very practical lives of a married family with kids. I have a, I have some friends who do this. They come over once a week and, you know, it's, Thursday night, pizza and movie night. And we've had people who are single over, just come be a part of our family. If you're a married family and you've got time and space and know somebody who's single, maybe invite them over, maybe on a holiday, something like that. That's more, how can the church play a role? But Shay, your point of build deep friendships, it might feel weird. It might feel awkward and it might be hard to get that first step, but that's a good practical way. Who can you begin to develop these deep friendships with maybe even a married family? Yeah, that's a good question to think about. Well, and and I would say that there's a big difference between intimacy and sexual connectedness in marriage. You can have one without the other. And intimacy is something you can develop with another human being. And that can be so fulfilling and life-giving to your heart. Yeah. I was... um, I approached a married couple when I was single. I married late, married when I was 30. And I approached them. I was very, very good friends with the husband and got along well with the wife. And I said, can I just like hang out with you guys and learn what it's like Mm. just to be with a healthy family? And Mm -hmm. they basically sort of adopted me. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You, really, you have to pursue those relationships for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So just to wrap this up, what, what we're saying is, is that the Bible 
affirms marriage as being something that is good. And the Bible also affirms singleness as being something that is also good. And we need to emphasize both of those, the goodness of both, not overvalue marriage, not undervalue it, mm-hmm. but also to honor uh, singles and, and, and for singles to remember that God, wherever he has you, is going to be faithful um, to you. So find your contentment in him. Mm, yeah. This has been a really great discussion as we've been able to tackle two listener questions today, and we're going to do more in the future. But for now, I want to just give a little bit of a teaser to our listeners about our upcoming series that's called Grounded in Grace. I'm really excited about this series that's launching this fall because it's going to be a little bit more theological than some of our previous series where we've talked more about relationships and emotions. But we really want to do this because we think as Christian counselors and pastors that a key element to healing and managing life in the weeds is to pair our experiences and our relationships with biblical truth and solid theological foundation. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what the gospel is. We're going to look at what is justification and sanctification and kind of parse these out a little bit for you. So we hope that you listen and learn, and we look forward to you being with us this fall in our Grounded in Grace series. All right. Thanks for hosting us today, Lynn. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. Good Good to be be with with you guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at withyouintheweeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.